0: Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to read through this and then I'm going to teach from it. The sermon's in a sense shifted forward a bit in this service and so we can give a bit more time to the Lord's Supper after that. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I have written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. What are the marks of a true church? How do you tell what a true church is? How do you identify it? Well, you might say, yes, well, I know that a church is not the building, so I don't identify it by a spire and a cross on the top. It's a gathering of Christians. Yeah, that's good. But not every time Christians get together is it a church. They might get together to have a picnic. doesn't make them a church. They might get together to be a Christian union. That's great and does good things, but it doesn't make it a church. What's it got to include to be a church? Well, back in the 1500s, there was this thing called the Reformation, when believers broke away from the Roman Catholic Church, and they were faced with this issue. Because the Roman Catholic Church said, and had said for hundreds of years, we are the true church. And these people who'd broken away, they thought they were setting up true churches. So how do they identify what is a true church? What are the marks of a true church? Well, they were people who took the Bible seriously and they looked into it carefully and they came up with a handful of things the church must do. Things all churches must do. There were things there you'd expect like Bible teaching and taking the Lord's Supper and baptism. But would you expect this one? They said one of the handful of marks of a true church is it does church discipline. They said there's one of the marks of a true church. It engages in church discipline. Well, they were right. It's in the Bible, but it isn't done very much. It's pretty rare for it to be practiced. And so we need to learn about church discipline that's the subject of 1 Corinthians 5. So I hope you've still got in front of you 1 Corinthians 5. For those who don't know, we're going through 1 Corinthians. We've been doing roughly a chapter at a time. And uh, tonight we're going to do it topically. I think that's a good idea, Anthony, isn't it? We're going to get distracted and blown away. So let's just pause a minute and get things a bit more peaceful. Thank you, Barclay. Tonight we're going to do things topically rather than work through the whole chapter in order, but I think we will cover the whole chapter in the end. Um, But in the end it's going to take two weeks, I think, this time. Last time we were in chapter four, obviously, and in chapter four we found the Corinthians were judging each other who had the best gifts, who was most impressive, and they were told, and we were told, don't judge. This time, in chapter 5, we are told, do judge. The chapter ended with a very definite, you must judge. And that raises some questions. When must we judge? How are we to judge? Why should we judge? And I want us to do the when and the how this evening, and then the why next week. That's my plan. So... We're going to start with when must we judge. And we're going to spend most of our time this evening on the when. I want to start with exactly the same illustration that I used last time. The Great British Bake Off. Now, I expect most of you know what it is for those who don't. Baking competition on the TV. And there you are. You're watching these people baking and you see someone and his cooking looks a right mess. And you judge. He's going to be thrown out this week. There's the bottom of the class baker. He'll be thrown out. There's another person and her cake looks so impressive. And you judge. I think she's going to be the winner. She's going to be the star baker this week. What's wrong with your judgment? Three problems with your judgment. One, you are not the judge. Paul Hollywood and Prue, I think it is, are the judges, not you. Another one, you're judging too soon. If you judge by what their baking looks like while they're doing it, it's too soon. The proof of the pudding is in the eating, not in the looking at it first while it's being made. And that links to the third problem, which is you can't see what it's really like. You can go by appearances, but they can be deceiving. And when the judge cuts into that cake and finds that it's raw and uncooked, well, there's a different matter. One who looks so good, maybe ends up being thrown out of the great British bake-off tent. Now, those three problems with judging are all in chapter 4. Let's just for a moment go back to chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. And you've got those same three problems with the way the Corinthians were judging each other. Verse 4, right at the end of the verse, it says, It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. The Corinthians needed to hear that because they were judging each other's contribution to church life. They were judging how impressive each other looked, judging each other's service, And they needed to be told, look, it's the Lord who judges, not you. It's too early to judge. Wait till he returns. And you can't judge another person's service. There's so much you don't see. The Lord sees the heart. But in chapter 5, we are told to judge. When are we to judge? Well, we could reverse those three problems to get the answer. We are to judge when the Lord, who is the judge, tells us when it is the right time, and when it can be clearly seen what's going on. you get that? I've just reversed the three problems. When the Lord, who is the judge, tells us when it's the right time, and when it can be seen what's going on. Let's go through those, and again we're going to spend first most time on the first. When the Lord tells us to. Now, where did Paul get his teaching about church discipline from? 1 Corinthians 5 is about church discipline. Where did Paul get it from? The simple answer is Jesus. Jesus talked about it, and Paul is applying what Jesus had taught. You can see that in verse 4. Verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present... I've stopped partway through a sentence, but try to keep that verse in your mind. And we're going to trace back and look at some connections. So I hope you can follow the connections. Keep that verse in mind and look at Matthew 18. If you can find Matthew 18 or you could just listen. Keep that verse in mind and either listen to or look at Matthew 18, verse 20. Verse 20, for where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Do you see the similarity? Do you see where Paul's got the idea of people meeting in the name of Jesus and the power of Jesus being present? He's got it from this part of Jesus' teaching. Jesus is with his church. Why? Because it's his church. We're going to trace the connections back a little bit more. Just turn back to chapter 16, Matthew 16 and verse 18. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus is with his church because it's his church. His church will prevail because it's his church and he's the head and he rules. And he's given the leaders in the church something. What has he given them? It's in verse 19. Still Matthew 16, verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He's given the leaders of the church keys. What are keys for? They're for letting people in or for putting people out of the church. You've got the same thing in Matthew 18. Sorry for the jumping about, but let's go back to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. I'm trying to show you some connections here. I'm trying to show you a topic that's coming up. Matthew 18 verse 18 you've got the same thing i tell you the truth whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven jesus is stating that he who rules the church has given his church authority he's given authority to his church and he's put that there to explain what he's just said I hope you're managing to trace and follow the path he's what has jesus just said He's just said in verses 15 to 17 that there are times when people sin and they have to be put out of the church. There are times when people have to be judged and put out of the church. Jesus has said there are times when we must judge that someone is to be treated as, as if they're not part of the church. Jesus rules the church because it's his church. But he's given authority to his church to judge. We must judge when the Lord tells us to. But when is that? When does he tell us to? Well, let's go through verses 15 to 17 and try to get the idea of what's going on here in these verses. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, a fellow Christian sins against you, what's the sin? We don't know. It doesn't say. That isn't the issue. How hurt are you by this sin? How bad has it been? We don't know. It doesn't say. That isn't the issue. What is the issue? The issue is this. Will you go and seek reconciliation? Will you be brave and loving and go and say, it seems to me you've sinned. I might have got this wrong, but, but let's talk about it. And you talk about it. And if he listens, good. Be reconciled. Forgive and forget and move on. By the way, what does it mean by if he listens? Does it mean he listens to what you say and then his face is clouded with anger and he says, it's actually all your fault, get out of my house. Clearly not. This needs to be put with what Jesus says elsewhere. If your brother repents, is sorry for his sin, forgive him. Even if he does it 77 times, forgive him. What if he isn't sorry? Well, you try again. Verse 16. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. What if he still won't listen? Well, the church gets involved. Verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. What if he still won't listen? Well, he's treated as an outsider. He's treated as someone outside the church. Let's think about why he's treated as someone outside the church. If he's actually kept in is it because the sin was small and we can overlook it? No, definitely not. If he's put out of the church, is it because the sin was too big and we just can't overlook that one? No, definitely not. The issue it all hinges on is repentance. Is there repentance? That's just as we would expect because the church is to be run on gospel principles. Let's have an example, a made-up example, completely made up. Darren has wrecked two families. He's been unfaithful to his wife and he's committed adultery with a married woman. And he has devastated two families. And he's full of sorrow for his sin. Not just sorry about the trouble it's caused and about being caught, but for his sin. And he doesn't downplay it. He doesn't excuse it. He confesses what it shows up about his heart. And he begs for forgiveness from the people he's devastated and the God he sinned against. Here's a different example. Lily has said hurtful things about Rachel. And when she's confronted about it, she digs her heels in. And she says, Rachel deserved what she got. And no, she won't go and try and put things right. Now, which sin is bigger, Darren's or Lily's? I hope we all agree Darren's sin is bigger. I hope you don't do this thing that some Christians say that all sins are equal. That's obvious nonsense. Darren's sin is bigger. What a terrible sin. Which should be put out of the church? Lily, because she's refusing to repent. Oh, someone will say, you put her out of the church just for saying hurtful things to someone. No, no, she's not put out of the church just for saying hurtful things to someone. She's put out of the church for proud, stubborn refusal to repent. The church must be run on gospel principles. However big your sin is, Jesus welcomes you, and so do we if you are repentant. However small your sin is, Jesus does not welcome you, and neither must we, if you proudly refuse to admit your sin. Excuse it, downplay it, blame it on others, and won't turn from it. Now I must clarify what I mean by we don't welcome you. We welcome everyone, whatever their sin and their state of repentance in to listen to the gospel and to hear God's words. But we cannot welcome the unrepentant as if they are part of the church. We must judge when the Lord tells us to and only then. Now, do you remember my great British bake-off example? There were three problems with the judging. And the first was, you're not the judge. The second was judging too soon, judging before it's time to judge. And so here's the second thing about when we are to judge, when it is time, when it's time. Let's get back to chapter four. No, sorry, chapter five of 1 Corinthians. Well, actually, let me remind you first in chapter four of 1 Corinthians, the Corinthians would judge each other's contribution to church life. By appearance. And you can't tell other people's contribution yet. It's just so much you don't know. It's too soon. Wait for Jesus to return. But something should be judged now. And that's what verses six to eight is about. Let's get into one Corinthians five verses six to eight. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with the bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. Now, this is all a picture. It's all a picture. I mentioned the bake-off. We've got a baking theme again here. If you've got the NIV like me, it says yeast. The word should really be leaven, which is a little different from yeast. What was leaven? Leaven was a little lump of dough with yeast in it. And you'd kept it left over from the last time you baked Last time you baked, you kept apart a little lump of dough with yeast in it. Now you're baking again. You've got a big lump of dough. You're going to make a loaf of bread out of it. You get your little lump called the leaven and you add it in. And you knead them together. And you knead them and you knead them until the yeast has worked through the whole lump of dough. And before you put that in the oven to bake, you take a little lump away and you put it to the side. That's your leaven ready for next time. Next time you bake, you take that little lump and you add it into your new big lump. Do you get the idea? So that you've always got some yeast, it's always left over from the last time, and you can work it into your new loaf of bread. I hope I've got that accurate. I'm not a baker. But that's roughly what happened. Now, can you imagine if you're doing that every few days for a year, the potential for any bacteria is going to be spread, going to be passed on. Not great for hygiene. So the Jews were told by God, once a year, you've got to clear out all the leaven. You're not allowed any leaven in your house. It's got to all be cleared out. You need a fresh start. When did they do that? Just before the Passover. Just before the Passover feast. They'd clear out all the leaven. Got to get rid of it. It may be dirty. And then they'd sacrifice the Passover lamb and have the feast of unleavened bread. Now, are you starting to see the picture in verses 6 to 8? Verses 6 to 8 says, Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. It's already happened. He's already died for our sins. And so it's high time you threw out the leaven, the dirty, infectious leaven of unrepentant sin. It's time for that. Throw it out. The church is supposed to be a celebration of our Passover lamb, Jesus, free of the infectious leaven of unrepented sin. Throw it out. There's the picture. Some people get this wrong because they've misunderstood another picture Jesus gives. Do you know the parable of the wheat and the weeds? Some people get this wrong because they've misunderstood that parable. Jesus told a story of a farmer and he sows wheat in his fields and overnight an enemy sows weeds and the workers say, shall we pull up the weeds? And, and the farmer says, no, leave them until harvest time. Then we'll tear it all up and sort it all out. And people say, yeah, that means the church is a mixture of the repentant and the unrepentant. Believers and unbelievers, leave it like that until Jesus returns. Then he sorts it out. No. That's not what the parable says because Jesus says in the parable the field represents the world, not the church. The church is not to be a field that is a mixture. No, the church is to be the unleavened bread with which we celebrate that our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. We are to judge when the Lord tells us, when it is time And then the third one is when it can be seen. Do you remember the bake-off illustration? You judged that that woman's cooking was good, but you hadn't seen what the cake was like inside. When it can be seen. In chapter 4, the Corinthians were judging each other by appearance. But they couldn't tell what was going on in the heart, and so their judgment was wrong. In chapter 5, the problem is they're failing to judge what could be clearly seen. We are crazy sinners, aren't we? We judge what we can't see and then we fail to judge what we can see. It could be clearly seen. Have a look at verse 1. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. They could clearly see there's a man in the church having sexual relations with his father's wife. By the way, almost certainly not his mother, otherwise it would say his father's almost certainly remarried. They could clearly see it. Church discipline must happen when it can be clearly seen that a sin is not repented of. Not when we guess that someone is sinful. However good I guess, that's not good enough. It's when it can be clearly seen. Not when we have a feeling about someone. Do you sometimes get a bad feeling about someone? You might have a feeling someone is proud. You might be right. But you must not separate from them on that basis. It's only if that is evidenced by unrepentant sin. And the church disciplines the person for it. Only then can you separate. You can't separate from someone however strong a bad feeling you've got about them. And it mustn't be over issues of Christian freedom. Some Christians think you shouldn't drink alcohol. Some Christians think that you shouldn't go, go to the cinema. Some Christians think you must have a thing called a quiet time every day. Well, however good those things may be, they are not commands in the Bible. Church discipline can only be when people are going against what God clearly commands. Church discipline is making statements about what can be seen, not claims about what we can't see. So if someone is disciplined by the church, we are not saying that person is not born again outside of Christ, not in God's kingdom, because we don't know. And we hope that they are in Christ, born again, and it will be seen eventually by repentance. We're saying they're acting like someone outside of Christ. And therefore, we've got to treat them like someone outside the church. Right, we've had when should we judge? And we've got to be very careful about that because we are not to judge Apart from when, the Lord tells us to, according to his word in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5, when it is time, because it is polluting the church Christ died for, and when it can be clearly seen what's going on. More briefly, let's now answer the how question, then we'll have to leave the why question to next time. How are we to judge? And we're going to get this from two places and they are exactly the same places that we've been in already. So first of all, let's go back to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. How are we to judge? I've already gone through these verses, but I'm I'm going to rapidly go through them again because this is such an important subject. We've got to get this right. Let's just rapidly go through. Verse 15 says someone has sinned. And the person who's been sinned against has tried to get it put right. But it's not worked. And so appeals have been made to repent in verse 16. Maybe the elders have got involved in that at that stage. That might be sensible. They might be the other witnesses that are called alongside. But this hasn't worked. And so, verse 17, the church is told. The church is gathered together, told what's been happening. Not all the details. They don't need to know all the details. But they need to know enough to to be able to agree. We must appeal to this brother or sister to repent. But he or she still won't. Still insists there's no problem or it's someone else's fault. What is the church to do? Verse 17, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, how were pagans? By the way, pagan means a non-Jewish unbeliever or idolater. How were pagans or tax collectors to be treated? Well, as outsiders, not part of God's kingdom. You should still be polite. You should still be neighborly to a pagan or a tax collector. But they must be clear. You are not treating them as part of God's kingdom, as part of Christ's church. Who is to treat them like that? Who is to treat them like an outsider? The whole church, the whole church. See, the context in verse 18 is the church's authority to welcome people in or put people out the context in verse twen- 19 and 20 is the church agreeing together on an action and Jesus giving it authority and of course it would be unthinkable for it not to be the whole church let's ju- just try to imagine if it wasn't the whole church let's imagine aden has sinned against alice so alice is going to treat aden as an outsider while the rest of the church treat him as one of them what? that's just unthinkable that's a, a divided church not going by gospel principles. We must all accept the repentant and we must all show that we don't accept people who claim to be Christians but are unrepentant and persisting in their unrepentance. Again, we accept them in, come and hear God's word, but we show they are not part of Christ. They are not acting like part of Christ's church. And so we cannot treat them like part of Christ's church. Here's the second place we see just the same thing put into practice. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 5. And no surprise, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is clearly following the Lord's principles. And so it is all the church that makes the decision. Notice verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, it's all the church assembled makes the decision. Yes, Paul's, Paul's really pushing them to make the right decision, and he's taking the lead, but he wants them to be in this together. By the way, this is one of the reasons we have church membership. Because there are some decisions and actions the church is to make together. So you you need to know who's going to get together to make the decision. Who's actually part of the church? And then the unrepentant is to be put out of the church. That's what's going on in verse 5. Did verse 5 strike you? Verse 5. Hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. What on earth is going on there? Well, the church is under Jesus as head. Outside the church, the whole world lies under the power of the wicked one. That's what 1 John says. And so verse 5 is, you say to this person, look, you are acting as if you belong to Satan. So you are outside of the church in the kingdom of darkness as far as we can see. We hope that's not true. And you'll repent and prove to be a child of God. But you're looking like you're under the power of Satan the way you're behaving. So we've got to put you out of the church to show you just how serious this is. It Really a serious church discipline. It's not just a matter of opinion. It's not just a fallout between people. It's not just some people going separate ways, okay, we agree to go our separate ways, God bless you. No, it's such a serious thing. And so the whole church needs to put it into practice. Verse 11. They're all told to do it. Verse 11. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler, with such a person, do not even eat. They're all told, you've got to make this real. When I was 16, someone in the church that I was at, who I respected and liked, and he'd been my Sunday school teacher, and he was a very good Sunday school teacher. He was discovered to be doing dishonest business practices. I suppose in the language of verse 11, he was swindling people. And it was brought to him. And and he was pleaded with about it. it, And he wouldn't repent. And he dug his heels in. He wouldn't repent. And he was disciplined. And this caused me confusion. I, I so respected this man. And this really upset me. And that upset was increased by discovering people in the church being most friendly to him. And giving him the message, yes, you're under church discipline in theory, but we accept you. We welcome you. We think you're one of us. Was that going to encourage him to repent? Was that going to encourage him to take seriously the church's church's message? Or was that going to strengthen his claim that it's these nasty elders and he's okay really? God says this is serious business because we want verse 5 to happen. We want the person's spirit to be saved on the day of our Lord because there is such a thing as God's final judgment and we want people to take that seriously and be ready because even this immoral man could actually be saved on the day of our Lord if he repented. So, Verse 11, don't eat with him. Which of course includes, it's not just about this, but it includes don't have him eat with you at the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper is saying we are one church together. And don't give him those signs of fellowship like coming to home group or praying together with us in the prayer meeting because that says we're accepting you as part of this church. You need to make clear you love him too much to pretend everything is okay. It's someone who's not repenting. Sadly, there are times when we must judge. We've heard when, and we've heard how. Let's end with some good news. This isn't the only letter Paul wrote to Corinth. You get a little clue, by the way, in verse nine that he'd already read, written a letter before, but he writes another letter later, and we call it 2 Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians tells us the church did what Paul said, which I find quite amazing because Corinth was such a mess and yet they did this difficult thing that Paul said. They took his instruction seriously. And this man who had been so immoral, he's sleeping with his father's wife, when he found his sin wasn't being excused, when he found that people he'd worshipped God with wouldn't treat him as a fellow Christian, It got to his heart and we find in 2 Corinthians he repented. He repented and when Paul wrote 2 Corinthians he was able to say welcome him back, reaffirm your love for him. Jesus knows best how his church should be run, hard though it sometimes is. So let's store up this teaching So we're ready to obey our Lord and put it into practice if and when it's needed. Tonight's message is about the church being ready to do what Jesus says when the need arises. It's not giving you something to do this week. because Thankfully, I'm not aware of a situation like this at the moment at Holywell. So it's not giving you something to do this week. Or is it? Or is it? Because church discipline says repentance is not optional. And when we hear God's word, we're not just listening to a talk, take it or leave it, go away, and was that interesting or not tonight? God demands that we do what he says. So if there is sin you are aware that you are not repenting of and you are clinging on to, if you are aware that there are things God has told you to do and you're just plain refusing to do them, In that case, tonight's message does give you something to do. Repent. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we bow and acknowledge that you are the head of the church. You rule us, and that is good, so good. Thank you that you are so ready to welcome the repentant, However big our sin, however horrible, however re- repeated, 77 times doing the same thing and still you are ready, willing eager to forgive. What a good saviour you are. We thank you, you are head of the church. So please help us to be ready to put your instructions into practice when we need to. Help us to be humble and recognise that we each need to listen to each other's uh, corrections at times. And help us to see if there is any unrepentance in us and to repent. And help us now to celebrate that you our Passover lamb, have been sacrificed. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In a few minutes, we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper together. And you might think, is that a bit of a strange putting two things together? We've just heard teaching on church discipline. And then we've got this time of celebrating Jesus' death. Do those two go together? Well, yes, they do, actually, because the Lord's Supper is our Passover meal. We're remembering our Passover has been sacrificed and we're celebrating our forgiveness for all of our sin. And so we must throw out, well, what verse 8 says. The yeast of malice and wickedness and celebrating sincerity and truth. And in particular, 1 Corinthians 11 that describes the Lord's Supper is not in a lovely glowing context of let's just sit back and bask in Jesus. It's actually a chapter about dealing with sin in the church. And making sure we are in right relationship with each other. Not sinning against each other. So let's just pause for a minute before we go any further and to check. Is there any, do you have sin that you're refusing to repent of? Do you have anyone that you ought to reconcile with before you take the Lord's Supper? Please note, we are not checking, have I sinned or not? The answer for all of us is yes, we have. And we're here to remember forgiveness, free and open. But let's pause and check. Is there reconciliation needed? Is there repentance needed? Let's just take a moment.